So we're in chapter 9, and I believe we're ready to start verse... Let's back up a little bit so we have the context. Verse 14. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but upon God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. You will say to me then, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who indeed are you, a human being, to argue with God? What will what is molded say to the one who molds it? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy whom he has prepared for beforehand for glory, including us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. This is probably the core of the difficulty in Romans 9. It sounds very predestinarian. Mm -hmm. It sounds like Moses, I mean that Moses, Paul is, is saying, what right do you have to contend with God? Uh, this is just the way he does it, and it's his will and not ours. And, of course, this spawned Calvinism, this passage, which was a great relief to many people. You don't have to work your way to heaven. God chooses who's saved or lost. You have no right to say yay or nay. It's not your will but his will. So how do we deal with this? I'm tempted to use what pastor is going to preach on. He's preaching on this passage this morning. And I'm tempted to use what he told me he's going to say, but I'm not going to spoil his sermon. <laughs> Let's talk about who can resist his will, verse 19. What is his will? He has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. That's his will, that he has mercy on whom he chooses and hardens the heart of whom he chooses. Say the say the will part again, that first part you just said. For who can resist his will? What is his will? His will is that he has mercy on whomever he chooses and hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. But if you go down, when he talks about God doing that, actually doing that, verse 22 is instructive. What if God desiring to show his wrath? Remember in Romans 1, wrath is giving people up to the consequences of their choice. Uh, maybe we should review that. Let's look at Romans 1. Uh, just so it's really clear. Starting with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of his world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse, for though they knew God, 
They did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their senseless minds are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. So what does God do? All it talks about is what we do when God gives up, gives them to his wrath. So here's what God does, verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This is natural consequence. You worship a false god and you become impure of heart. You start degrading your body and you serve the creature rather than the creator. And then what's the next step? God gives you up to degrading passions. To, to what kind of? What? Degrading, degrading passions. So, if we remember that God's wrath is giving people up to the consequences of their choice, because Romans 1 is really about choice, and we read that back into Romans 9, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for discussion, destruction? So, God has a lump of clay. Let's use this analogy. And he makes two different unique individuals out of it. And one individual he can show mercy on because they accept his mercy and his love. The other lump of clay doesn't pass the grade, as it were. And God has to endure and put up with that lump of clay while it stubbornly opposes him. And it's his will to do that. So I'm not convinced, even though the words seem very much that way, I'm not convinced that Paul is taking away our free will. I think his language sounds that way, but I don't think that's his intention. Because every well else in Romans, we're free to choose. But what he doesn't want, what he is taking away, is that our exertion and our effort, and ultimately even our choice, really is what saves us. It's God's mercy that saves us. It's his compassion that saves us. Not anything we do. But we still have the freedom to choose, to embrace that or reject it. I plan to join that long line with whatever is the form of a book in eternity that stands in front of Paul and says, what did you mean here? <laughs> but, but I do think that understanding wrath as he portrays it uh, breaks open this open into understanding that he's not negating free will. And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? He wants to make known the riches of his glory. See, that's what happened with Pharaoh. And he, he uses Pharaoh here. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you so that my name may be proclaimed in all the world. And, and this is why, what Ellen White rests her argument on, that God deliberately chose this Pharaoh because he knew he would harden his heart. He wanted that to show his power, to demonstrate his ability to set Israel free. If he'd had a, a weaker Pharaoh who had capitulated on the first plague, nobody would get the point. It isn't, isn't 
part of the isn't it part of the process here whereby God hardens a person's heart by by exhibiting the power the, and the truth the mercy and so they yes. he ex, see he exhibits that and they don't want it so they so they harden it he has an appointed time that he Thank you brings that, that image up he doesn't do it before that time he does it at precisely the right time of his choosing in that person's life he shows that image that that hardens their life and and because they walk away from that image, they're walking away from the impression of the spirit. The spirit would give them of that image, and so they're being given up. Yeah. I, I can't quite yeah. play the, yeah. that notion I think into that, this language yet. I think that's an excellent yet. description of what's going on here. If you look at Exodus, how do you get that out of this language? Though is what I'm trying to figure out <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you get it out of Exodus, and then you plant it back into Paul, chapter seven, Exodus seven. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when the, Lord, when the Pharaoh says to you, perform a wonder, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they also the magicians of Egypt, but, but the same by their hearts, by their arts. Each one threw down his staff and they became snakes. But Aaron's staff swallowed up there their staffs still pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to the lord said what the lord said so here's this great display of power um aaron's is superior to the magicians but because the magicians can do something similar uh and god doesn't stop them from doing it right he doesn't say no your snakes can't become your rods can't become snakes only mine no he doesn't do that he he's bears with much patience their hardness. So then he says, God, go to the water, stand by the river bank. This is now verse 15. Uh, Take your hand in your hand the staff that turned into a snake. Say to him, Yahweh, the God of Hebrews, sent me to you to say, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness until you have now you have not listened. Therefore, says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. See with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall be turned to blood. The fish in the river shall die and the river itself shall stink, and the Egyptians shall be unable to drink the water from the Nile. So the God tells him to stretch out his, his staff. He does so, and the water in the river was turned into blood, and the fish in the river died. The river stank so that the Egyptians could not drink his water, and there was blood throughout the whole land of, the, of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. God didn't stop the magicians from doing that. He endured with much patience their resistance. So next we have the frogs. Everywhere. I've been through a plague of frogs. But they fortunately weren't in my house. But they were all over everywhere. You can almost not step without walking on a frog. It was in Hong Kong where I taught for three years. <laughs> it was a rainy time. Uh, I, uh, it was bad. But anyway, uh, so they had all these frogs. And now there's a change. Pharaoh says to Moses, and Aaron says, Pray to the Lord. Take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Kindly tell me when I am to pray for you and your officials, that the frogs may be removed from your houses and left only in the Nile. He said, Tomorrow. Moses said, As you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses and your officials and your people, and they shall be left only in the Nile. And so Moses cries to God, and 
The frogs died in the houses, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But notice this verse. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, <laughs> he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. So Pharaoh hardens his heart not when the frogs are multiplying in the land or the lice or whatever it is the plague is. He hardens his heart when there's respite, when there's mercy, when there's compassion. And and you can play that cycle on it. It's just clearest in verse 15 of chapter 8. So when um, even, even when it's shown to him, that's when he hardened it. When it's shown, when the mercy is shown to him, right. So, basically, basically, um, Paul, I think, is saying, in language that sounds less than this, or more than this, maybe, or different than this, he's saying, you have this lump of clay. God makes two unique individuals. One, he share, he shares his, he shows his mercy on both of them. And his mercy hardens some people's hearts, but it softens other people's hearts. As, as we said last time, what hardens the clay melts the wax. And we, there we have two different materials. But it is true that um, the consistency of clay can change very, very rapidly within a clump. Uh, you can use one part of it maybe to, for use... But, but what Paul is saying now in uh, chapter 9, verse uh, 23, And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of his mercy, which he prepared for beforehand for glory? So what if he hardened Pharaoh's heart by showing him the truth in order to show his glory? Say that again, Neil. What if he hardened Pharaoh's heart by showing him the truth? And did so for his glory. So he, without this dramatic story, Pharaoh hardened his heart at God's mercy repeatedly, repeatedly. Israel would never have that, that pinnacle of understanding of how God saves. And, and that he can save to the utmost. And that he can save in the most difficult situation. And he wouldn't have shown all the Egyptians. He was the most powerful God. Because, honestly, these, those, those plagues were attacks on the Egyptian gods. They were judgments on the Egyptian gods. So, so, if, he took, if, he took the, so if he took this respite to heart, then might, might, the, might it... Might it be that that which would have to be obvious to him is that he would release them and let them go? He would give them respite? Yeah. Yeah. And that's where he... And, and so it's like, oh, I appreciate this, but wait a second. This, you know, I appreciate what was done for me, but I don't want to do what was done for me for someone else. Well, it's, it's the case of, well, the plague's gone, you know, why should I let them go? Mm -hmm. So he doesn't let them go. And then he has another round of a plague and respite, and he doesn't let them go again. It's interesting that he didn't completely take the plague away. He still had heaps of stinking frogs. That's yeah. a reminder to me yeah. that um, 
But uh, but at least they weren't croaking in his house. I guess. <laughs> it's a, it's it's quite a story. But I really think that that story is informing Paul what he's wanting to say. It, is this other thing about the clay, about him, you know, making the clay this way or that way? Is that other? Is that also an indication that he? sets people up in these positions. He you know, he chooses these people for these positions. It's well, not that he, he doesn't take chose, a cho- choice he, away. He certainly chose for Pharaoh. And there's more to this than I can say, but if you'll go to hear a pastor's sermon, you'll hear the rest of it. He's actually preaching on this. Is passage. it right after this class? Mm-hmm. He's actually preaching on this. I happened, I happened to go see him about something else, and he had to tell me what his sermon was about. <laughs> and it's on Romans 9. <laughs> and he told me what he was going to say, and I'm biting my tongue not to say what he's going to say. So, as indeed he says in Hosea, verse 25, those who were not my people, I, I call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved, and in the place, very, very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the living God. What is his main point here? That the Israelite community does not want to bestow salvation on the, or let God bestow salvation on the Gentiles. He called us. He didn't call them. And Moses, and I don't know why I keep calling Paul Moses. And Paul, he's the Moses of the New Testament, I guess. That's why. That's my Freudian slip constantly. I'll read be lying that. Anyway, what Paul is really saying is he has the right to make of a lump of clay whatever he wants. So he has the right to take the Gentiles and save them. And you've hardened your hearts. And you hardening your hearts. Don't do it. <laughs> You're like the Pharaoh. Yeah. You're like the Pharaoh that doesn't want to extend salvation to the Gentiles. As if you have any any say in who gets saved or lost. Yeah. I, I really think that's... We, we always... We're so Greek in our thinking. And in our thinking, everything should have a logical, linear connection to the next thing and lead naturally up to the conclusion. That's not how Hebrew thinking is. You tell a story, and then you connect it to the next point. And you tell another story, and you connect it to the next point. And it isn't real clear the logic that is leading you along. And so what happens is, and this is our other problem with biblical hermeneutics, we take verses out of context and rest everything on that verse and get ourselves stuck every time. It's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. We've got to get to the end of the story in order to understand what is taking place. So... That is his main point. You have two lumps of clay. One's an Israelite lump and one's a Gentile lump. And God is showing his mercy on both lumps. But one lump resists and the other lump reveals God's glory in a different way by accepting his mercy. And and when that lump does that, is that how he ends up, when the Gentile lump does respond and... Well, is that in, how he in makes this them case, he's, he's jealous. This, yeah, yeah, I think so. But in this case, he's kind of crossing over because you had the Israelite lump and the Pharaoh lump in his illustration, 
And the Pharaoh lump hardened his heart for God to show his glory and set Israel free. But now, the Israelite lump is resisting God's mercy to the Gentiles. They're being Pharaoh. And Israel cries out concerning, I'm sorry, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, verse 27. Though the number of the children of Israel were like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence on the earth quickly and decisively. So, ouch, only a remnant. That, how would that hit us as the remnant? If someone were to say to us, only a remnant of the remnant will be saved. I believe it. <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of people would believe it. I just wonder what some people who want to prune down the remnant would say. They might say, yes, there will be a remnant and we'll make sure there is a remnant. I think, I think some of you don't know what's happening right now in the church. The... Uh, ADCOM, the, so that, the Administrative be- con- Committee, has developed five oversight committees. Say, say this again. The, the Administrative Committee of the General Conference has created five oversight committees. Compliance, compliance committees. committees. <laughs> but they're called oversight committees because they oversight the compliance, oversee the compliance. <laughs> Sorry, can't talk straight today. So you have these oversight committees that each one has a particular situation in the church, a belief system. Like one is over evolution creation. Uh, one is over doctrinal, the, the pillars of the church. One is over policies such as women's ordination issues. And I don't remember the other two. Homosexuality. Homosexuality, that's right. And then there's one that's more general. I guess beliefs, doctrinal beliefs in general. And these oversight committees are supposed to hold, you might say, inquisitory kinds of meetings to investigate people who are reported to them as being out of, how should I put it, being non-compliant. Mm-hmm. And, and they have an attorney, yes, on each one. And they have an and attorney on each one. And they general conference officials. Yes. Now, one of them has a professor from Andrews, but I think everybody else is just leaders at the general conference. Yes. Mm-hmm. Most of them are general conference But the significance officers. of this is that it bypasses our and church's entire democratic process of how yes. we do church. It completely changes the way we do church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the way they set it up is that if nobody down below brings anybody, sniffs out the heretics and the non-compliant people and brings them to these oversight committees for review, uh, they have the right to reach their arm into the church and, and do that for the church. Sounds so papal to me. Well, that's what you're not the only one saying that. You should read George Knight on Spectrum about that. And also, um, uh, Gilbert Valentine has an article this week um, in which he, he tells the backstory of 
the kingly power that was exhibited in the 1890s when Ellen White was in Australia, and he tells the Australian backstory to that, um, and how she likened it to treading the path of Rome. Where's that article? It's on Spectrum Online. Okay. So you go to spectrummagazine.org. Okay. You can find it there. These haven't been put into effect. That will only happen if the they, if they vote for it at this next annual council, which is next month. October. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I gave the dates board. earlier for that. It, the business meetings are fourteen, October fourteen to seventeen. So we would we we would otherwise show people that are of these different classes mercy, and that somehow, and they would either respond or harden their hearts on their own, or we come down with the sword, and. Kill people with truth, and, and condemn them, and lead them well, in, and know, lead them into prison instead of setting them free. For individual, all the way through leadership, or is it just to bed out and find the leadership? You know, down through. No, it's everybody. Even it, down it, to the it, minuscule it, member. That yes, just it can, anybody can be brought to these oversight committees. The way it's set up. Bring it and the, the thing that makes us the thing, <laughs> the thing that makes it so interesting, it makes it so um, serious, is that they've already set this in place before they vote. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Everything's set up. Uh -huh. You mean they've decided on the entire they just need structure? The rubber stamp. They're, they've decided on the entire structure and who's going to fulfill all the positions. Yes. Oh, yes. yes. Well, how, There's okay. only one position that hasn't been filled, according to their record that their uh, list. Does it do everyone? Does people know who all these everyone is on these committees? I was surprised at one name. I think she works in the Sabbath School Department, and I was surprised that she would belong to such a thing. Is Mark Finley on one of those committees? Yes. Yes. What? Okay. Oh, everybody's wow. under under this. That's really upsetting for me. And and I think <laughs> I think that there has been intense manipulation of Africa and South Asia and Asia and South America to get their votes. I think there has also been attempts to to, uh, educate those entities by others who disagree. So I think that what the Africans and the Asians and the, and the South Americans are going through must be really excruciating right yeah. now. Yeah. Do I keep my job or do I stand up for right. what I believe in? Exactly. It's it's a kind of a reign of terror. If they should vote it now, down, this will not be the end. Um, it won't come back. In other words, you're not going to let it, it go. It won't It'll come back research. for a vote. It will just happen. Mm -hmm. And it may happen in ways that we would just horrify us. I mean, they're on a trajectory toward violence. And you look at Rome, for example. When they first began the Inquisition, it was like the oversight committees. You, mm -hmm. came, you came for a trial, and the church put you, excommunicated you. But then they decided, thanks to Thomas Aquinas, who a little later was uh, writing about hell, 
that in purgatory, in purgatory it was invented, that they decided that uh, one of the ways to purify the church was through purgatory. So they invented burning people at the stake and other forms of torture. Can I ask where in biblical prophecy and Adventist prophecy through Ellen White um, how this, where this fits in, where the trajectory this is taking us, what is it fulfilling? Or is the it only thing I can point to is Ellen White's great fear that this would happen. She had I an know, enormous... I remember she talked about a really great fear, just she trembled, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. remember if you read, If you read Gill's article... On spectrum, uh-huh. you'll get you'll get a picture of how fearful she was that this would happen. And at one point, she said, "I had hoped there would not have to be another coming out." Wow. Well, she says after the church uh, restructured its organization in 1901, um, and there was no change, she said it was like the saddest thing in her right. whole life. Right. Say and that again. Say that again. Uh, so the church restructured. She came back from Australia, back from uh, Australia. because the church m- radically needed to be restructured, which they did in 1901. They actually voted that they were going to have three general conference presidents. This was prior, 1897, I believe. One in Australia, one in Europe, and one in America. And each would be in charge of the different fields of the work. In 1901, they actually voted there would be no general conference president. They said, we don't want someone at all. Um, And the man who was in charge was so... He was the kingly power that we read about, right? Mm -hmm. He was the kingly power. And um, he orchestrated things after that to put himself back into power by 1903. He was back in his position again. He did it by signing his name as president of the general conference. She said it was the saddest time of her life because she realized nothing had changed. Um, and she realized this big hierarchical system that we'd set up. We actually have two other, two extra levels of administration in our church beyond what the Roman Catholic Church has. That's how many levels of administration that we have. Um, so I don't, I don't believe it was God's plan to have so many divisions. Males. I don't think it was. They created unions to counterbalance, then they created divisions, and then. The General Conference President took control of those divisions, said, I'm going to be in charge of them. Mm-hmm. So, in my thinking, it, it, it doesn't reflect. But, again, what we're seeing is the worst of that system right. coming to a head mm-hmm. and then grabbing and this, this is not This is not something that's just suddenly out of the blue. Yeah. It has been developing since about 1998. Uh, we, we had a precursor of this in 1997-98, Robert Falkenberg toured uh, the educational institutions of higher education in North America with his commitment to God document. His commitment to God document called for the very things that the oversight committees are supposed to be doing. They called for church members to to rat on their pastors and and for pastors to rat on the conference. I mean, everybody was supposed to rat on everybody and watch for heresy and and report on it and and. Um, then the church would basically, I guess, put them out of the church. Um, so, so this 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 whole thing, and I, <laughs> we had a discussion at that meeting, which was in Daphne Chapel, with Robert Falkenberg, and 
that was the mic was handed to the faculty, you can talk now. And I raised my hand and I said, what is your spiritual and biblical basis for this document? Because he kept talking about how he was going to make the church a more spiritual church and, and bring it back to the Bible. And, and so I said, what is the biblical and spiritual basis for your document? And I don't remember what he said for the spiritual basis, but I'll never forget what he said about the biblical one. This biblical basis was Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah, but men didn't... <laughs> It was an amazing moment. Um, so, so is is there is, is they have a, they have a plan they put together. They've already assigned positions for these people. They're going to vote it into place. Is it is it out there for people to read about? It's in yes. the review. Oh, you can. So the whole plan is. I've seen the least. So so basically, it takes somebody that can art articulate scriptural principles against that thing to go to them, to be raised up and go to them and show them how this whole thing, and it could be some well, of the principles the we're only talking way, about right now. The only way you can go to them, they will ignore you if you try to go to them. The only way you can go to them is to speak in a public forum and because they read everything. and They read Spectrum. And so you speak in the public forum and, and you try to get their ear that way. Uh, but they don't read. They, they read, but they don't really read what you say. It, they read, but they... I put read in Read, quotes. right. They don't listen, in other words. They don't read. It's like I've seen done... They'll make claims for something that isn't true. If you read the document carefully, you would know that's not what the person was saying. You know, that kind of thing. So... No, it, it is, if I didn't have such trust in God that he was leading mm -hmm. his people, mm -hmm. uh, I would be absolutely terrified. You know, I want to know, the, what, what, are the, what do they think the consequences are going to be? I mean, so all you have to say is, buy church, you just, what a big deal. Like, the members can just leave the church. Why? Yeah. I don't want to be a part of your organization. We're just going to have a... Huge exit. You know, this is this is what kingly power does to psych. Arrogance and pride are the roots of kingly power. Mm -hmm. And when you have that mode, you you lack empathy. <laughs> you only have empathy for the people who think like you, mm -hmm. right? Because that's having empathy for yourself. But you don't have empathy for people who are different than you, and so you fail to realize what they're going to do. You don't see. Yeah, our millennials will just leave in droves. But well, they've already and left. Our, and our, and our yeah, young leave. people after 2015. But yeah. but you're you're saying they you're saying pride, with the pride they don't see the consequences of that they don't, or or they so don't. they don't imagine. No. Okay. Because no, my, my biggest complaint is my biggest complaint since I came into the circles is that people were afraid to enunciate the truth. Ignoring the fact that that might actually set like, somebody free, for for fear that somebody might get offended and leave, because they didn't yeah. want people no. leaving. No, no I've seen are, it everywhere. No, I'm, not, I'm not talking about people in your positions. I'm talking about you no, know the average here's, member here's of the, the church. Here's what the problem is: the church is asleep. They're not really aware of these issues. The the members in the pews just are not aware. 
See, I'm not. I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about what's going on at those levels. I'm talking about what I've met at the low, at the lower levels. People are afraid of offending people for well, fear that they will leave. That they will leave. That they'll get feelings hurt and leave instead of speaking some articulate truth. Because I've spoke articulate truth at times, and have offended people, and they've uh, they've dis- they've they've discussed what to do about it. Well, and then they've called me into account, and I've gone into account to this one older woman. And she and she left, and I spoke articulately to her, and she says, "You're absolutely right. You're speaking for God." And she said, and she she was willing to yield, and it affected everybody else. Where where everybody else wants to quash that kind of thing because they're afraid somebody will get offended. Well, now at the top levels, they're doing they're they're doing it in a, in a now now they're gonna now they're gonna clamp down. On some of the sins that they've seen, but they're doing it with kingly powers and no mercy. And well, and we won't it's, be... it's more than that. They have a very narrow view of what Adventism is. Extremely narrow. There's no allowance for diversity. There's no allowance for uh, fresh views. There's no allowance for anything but something that goes back to 1945 and hasn't moved an inch since then. 1945. <laughs> I, I'm just picking a random okay. date, but. I, I just, the, the thing is that they have, they have this tunnel vision. They don't see the after effect of what this is going to do. But I, I have confidence that God is going to see us through this. The boat's going to rock mightily. It's going to throw us off. It's going to shake and tremble. But God's going to see us through and I'm not, I'm not going to predict what is going to happen in terms of the church. But God will have a people. Mm-hmm. Well, you can still be Seventh-day Adventist and, and or Christian and believe in Christ and all the principles that, <laughs> that, that are much wider than this narrow view. See, what they would love to without do... Without having to be, follow this... What, what they would love to do is remove people from positions of power. They think that if they could remove, say, the Pacific Union Conference officers and Sandy Roberts and and all of those people, then they would have control over the union. They would not. And what they don't foresee is what will happen. Yeah. So we take a deep breath. You can pray for me. I I have the privilege, the dubious privilege of... um, at this momentous time when PUC is struggling. Mm-hmm. We forgot to pray for PUC, by the way. That was one of the things I got when I Okay. Said. No good. We when, prayed for it. Yeah. We did pray for <laughs> it. We did pray for it. Okay. <laughs> At this very critical crisis, you might say multiple crisis point, I have to deliver the uh, devotional for the board on Monday. And God has told me what to say, and it's positive. But the thing we have to have is our eyes on Jesus. We can't be looking at the situation. We have to have our eyes on Jesus, and we have to explicitly trust him. I think we need to be saying that to as many young people as we can, because it's very hard for them. Yeah. Very hard for them to see what's going on here, because some of our students are privy to behind the scenes because they work in some of these offices and hear what these... People are saying our college staff and faculty don't realize we have students who are listening and watching 
and they're saying things they shouldn't be saying in front of these young people. And then I hear it in my sessions. And mm-hmm. they're they're breaking down and they're losing all their confidence, not just in PUC but in the church. And because they're not, they don't have that mature faith to just focus on Christ and see that He'll work it out. All they see is everything disintegrating, and that it's maybe they there really isn't truth to the Adventist Church. It's all been a a made up lie. Mm. Wow. Mm. So it seems like That's a extreme view, just on a few doctrinal issues. I'll keep that in mind in my classes then. Yeah, thank you for letting us know that. Yeah. Um. I'll be praying about what I say now. <laughs> so I'm not sure what I have to say is all there is. Our time is up. But regardless of what happens in the future, we have to learn to trust Him. So, though the fig tree does not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vine, though the produce of the olive fail, and there be no flocks or herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet to hind, like hind's feet. He makes me tread upon the high places. A back watched his nation disintegrate. I, I'm sorry, say that the last... Habakkuk watched his gen, his nation disintegrate. Well, it, it may take years of this stuff going on for somebody to have a fire put under them to finally dig out the principles I don't, I to don't combat know. it by speaking to impress people what we should I, really be I, seeing I don't, and doing. I don't think that will work anymore. I've, I've that, spoken to people. I've spoken them truth, and their eyes glaze over, and they don't hear a thing I say. All they hear is themselves. Well, people. There are people that aren't going to be changed, but like, but there are. But it's. It, it doesn't matter about who isn't going to be changed. It matters about who doesn't know there what to are, do. But then hears articulately and goes, and I me, know what to let do. Let me tell you, there and are articulate voices speaking to this, but they're not being heard. Yeah, but are they being heard by who will hear them? It's not necessarily the leadership, but others. Because, I mean, in the midst of all these things, when these things happen, there are a lot of people that don't know what to think. Listen, you have to have a public venue, and all the public venues are tied up with factions. Factions. You can't get into them if you're not of that faction. Mm -hmm. So you can publish, you can write an article and send it to the review, but it won't get published. But it won't get published. And you can write an article for another venue, and it won't get published. Well, so you can only publish where you can. Some people read it. <laughs> What's that? People, there are people who <laughs> read it, just not the people who need it most. Yeah, but there's social networks these days. <laughs> I mean, the truth, pro- the truth is going to propagate. You know, like just like you said, there's some students over here that hear things they're a little confused. Well, they may not go to a public forum where these things might be allowed to be spoken or if an article is written into uh, sent into a publisher and it's not going to be published so they're not going to have the opportunity to, to, to read it but you can make your argument privately to that person John, you can be John, invited to a John, hall to with, hear things John listen 
Yeah. You're not in touch with the generation she's talking about. You're not in touch. They don't listen to argument. They listen to love and compassion. Okay. And that's it. Arguing their truth is not going to win them at all. It's going to turn them off, and you're going to be part of the problem. And you're going to be part of the problem. You have to show love to them. You have to nurture them. You have to be kind to them. And that's the only language they will understand. They're looking and watching behavior and actions. Words mean nothing to them. Right. Are, are you saying this is, this is the, the characteristics of this generation? It's the, it's the characteristic of the generation we have as college students at this time. At this time. It hasn't always been that way. It so hasn't, hasn't always, but it's been increasing that way increasing. since 2000. Yeah. For the last 18 years, it's been increasing mm -hmm. that way. Yeah. Just had a converse, long conversation with and, somebody and last night about the immaturity of people, in their, even in their 40s. But, but this is not about immaturity. This is about a church whose love has waxed cold. Waxed cold. Right. And we like to argue our way. We've been that way for 150 years. We like to argue our way because we are devoid of the love of Jesus in our hearts. We need conversion. We need a flat-out conversion experience. We need to show it instead of tell it. Mm -hmm. So I articles like that and send them into the review, and they were never published. He always got rejected. <laughs> Even as a pastor of the Central California Conference, he was constantly Who was rejected. This? My Alan Weigart. I know Alan Weigart. He's yeah. your dad? Yeah. But how do you know my dad? He was principal at, at Laurelwood oh, Adventist again. Academy when I was a kid. Really? I hope you liked him when he was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he was principal for about three years there. Mm -hmm. Were you there as a child? Um, I was there when he was principal because he taught school there, and then they had him go down to San Diego Academy to... He was kind of a fix-it principal. They would uh -huh. take him, have him go to academies that were... Struggling. Struggling for various reasons. And so when they went to San Diego, all their kids were grown, had just left home. And they okay. were getting that empty nest thingy. <laughs> okay. So they adopted me as a newborn in San Diego. Oh, okay. And then they went back up to Laurelwood for a few years. So those are probably my earliest memories, but barely. And yeah. then we came back to California. So, so I sent my childhood at Laurelwood. Okay, well, I was probably there for, I was a very... Do you like, remember what years those were? It would have to be in the late 60s. Yes, yes, that's we went what to it was. Miramonte by 72 or right. something. Right, so, yeah. Well, you left Laurelwood before 70, because we had another principal, and you left Laurelwood in 69, because we, we had Laura another Roy principal. We went to Grandy first, and then to Miramonte. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, that's interesting. Small world. Yeah, it is a small world. Yeah. Um, what I think. I think whatever happens, God is going to be the have to one to orchestrate mm -hmm. the healing process. I don't think we can. I think what's broken is too broken, and some things are too broken to be fixed by anything human. Human. Mm -hmm. It can only be fixed by God. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think we have to have our eyes on him so that we're ready for him to move and so that we are in following him instead of our own human devisings. All right, let's have prayer. Gracious Father, we live in 
very serious and difficult times. And our hearts ache for our young people who are confused and disillusioned and struggling to make sense of something that can't be made sense of. We ask that you will bring healing, as Jesus did when he was here on earth, that you will bring healing to every heart that's broken, to every person who is starving for love, and to every person who wants to see you as you really are. We pray that you will reveal yourself in glory, that you will make a way, that you will raise up a, a way for everyone to be drawn to you. And in that drawing, all of our human devisings, all of our human control issues, all of our desires to make people believe things the way we want them to will cease. And we will want only you to direct, to control, and to bring about change. Transform us, we pray, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.